From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. Today, the fight over the future of the Clinton Foundation. Donald Trump calls it a criminal enterprise. Amy Wilentz will comment. Also, what's it like to be an abortion provider in Utah, where state laws have made it almost impossible for women to get abortions? We'll ask Dr. Leah Torres. She's one of about 10 remaining abortion providers in the entire state. But first, it's the year of the white working class as far as politics is concerned. Donald Trump's base of support, we are told, is white men without a college degree who are angry and despairing over their economic decline over the last decades. And the Bernie Sanders campaign also won impressive support from the same group of people. A lot of people on the left have blamed the Democrats and especially the Clintons, Bill and Hillary, for failing the white working class, for exporting jobs with NAFTA, and for cozying up to Wall Street. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We see a lot of her on MSNBC, especially on Hardball with Chris Matthews, and she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached her today in New York City. Joan Walsh, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, I guess we have to start with Trump. He's doing better in the polls this week. Uh, This year, we've seen white working class men reject the Democratic candidate to support an open racist and sort of a semi-fascist for president. But is that a new phenomenon? You know, it's a new phenomenon only in the sense that Donald Trump is so extreme and, and we all are having a hard time getting our heads around him. But it's an old phenomenon uh, in the sense that these voters left the party, at least at the presidential level. They didn't just leave the party, you know, under Bill Clinton or under Obama. They literally left in the mid-60s, after 64, after 65, the changes, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the the cultural changes we saw in society. You know, uh, they were the bedrock of the New Deal coalition. Uh, They were still majority uh, supporting Democrats under John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson. But by 68, they had they had flipped over to the Republican side to support Richard Nixon, who ran a very racialized law and order campaign that took advantage of their anxiety about both a sense of rising disorder, as well as minorities getting ahead at their expense. So, you know, I, I, I in a, in a piece in the Nation this week, I've taken on some some colleagues that I respect, who've, who've especially Thomas Frank, who's, who've made the case that the Democrats are to blame for sort of pushing this white working class base away from them. In fact, the base fled. And in the 90s, it's true. I think that the Democratic Party took took a couple of wrong turns, and Bill Clinton took a couple of wrong turns in, in the uh, turn to neoliberal, neoliberalism and away from economic populism. But by the time he did that, they were already mostly gone. So I think there's a chicken and egg thing, and if we don't understand what happened, we don't have a good chance of, of winning at least some of them back. So this has been going on for a long time, running against Nixon in 1968, the Democrats, Hubert Humphrey, 
got around 35% of the white working class vote. Obama in 2012 got 36% of the white working class vote. There have been some ups and downs since then, but it is striking. It's actually amazing that 1968 and 2012 are so similar. You say a lot of this started with the, the Nixon Southern strategy. Southern white workers especially became Republicans then. But what about white workers in other parts of the country? Well, I think what we call Nixon's Southern strategy always had a Northern component. Um, they, you know, and, and it was really uh, targeted at, at what they called white ethnics, uh, kind of like my white working class Irish Catholic family, who Nixon and his advisors like Pat Buchanan and Kevin Phillips could see were, uh, were smarting at the changes in their status, were concerned about, you know, urban riots and what they perceived as attacks on police. And so they, the, the, the Northern strategy succeeded as well, but it never succeeded to the extent of the Southern strategy. So I think when we talk about this, we also, we have to understand when it started and it was Nixon, uh, you know, not Bill Clinton pushing these folks away. But then we also need to look at some regional issues because actually Barack Obama won uh, the white working class in New England. He kind of basically split it in the sort of Rust Belt Midwest, uh, lost it narrowly in some states, won it in others. And then he did okay in the mid-Atlantic states. The only places he really tanked were in the South and the so-called Mountain West. Those, in those places, I think he got 25% of white working class voters in the Southern states and basically a third of them in the Mountain West. So, you know, you really, it's really hard to generalize about who, who these voters are and why, whether and why they've, they've turned their backs on the Democratic Party. And this gets us to the key political issue for the Democrats uh, this year. What would it take for Clinton to win white working class voters? If we start with their issues, higher minimum wage, expanding Social Security, free college, paid family leave, federal jobs program on infrastructure. Seems right. like that's pretty direct bread and butter appeal to the working class. Well, exactly. And, that, and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm a little frustrated by, you know, my lefty friends who blame Clinton uh, and act as though she doesn't care and she's simply a tool of Wall Street. You know, she, she has, you can credit Bernie Sanders or not, but she has certainly moved to her left. She recognizes not only where the energy of the Democratic Party is, but also, I think, the crisis in the economy where we've had a recovery that didn't, that didn't bring a lot of people along with it. Uh, and that more government spending is going to be required to rebuild the middle class. She firmly believes that. And uh, I was talking to this really, really great scholar researcher, Roy, Roy Tejera, who uh, actually wrote a book, the, the book that kind of identified the rising Obama coalition, although he didn't call it that because it was back in 2002, but kind of safely predicted that the Democrats would rise again based largely on the votes of Latinos, African-Americans, college-educated white people and women. Now he's in the forefront of people of saying, you know, we've got to, we've got to at least improve Democrats' performance, maybe not win over, not, maybe not get back to 55%, but improve the performance or else we're going to be locked out of state houses. You know, it's going to be hard to win back the, uh, the, the House of Representatives if they really hemorrhage white working class votes. You know, I, I think some of the problem is, is cultural. I think that some of the problem is that, you know, white working class voters are looking for someone who's 
kind of more like them. Now, I, I find it ridiculous that Donald Trump, who was, you know, born into wealth, is perceived as more like them, but but he is. Um, and, and I think we've got to face the fact not all of these people are racist by any means, but the single... You know, the, the single largest predictor of whether you're going to be a Trump voter is the way that you answer questions that are geared to measure something called racial resentment. Uh, it's not so much income or education as do you think that, you know, black people have, have gotten it too easy? Do you think that racism is over? Even, you know, do you think that African-Americans are less intelligent? You know, these, these kinds of old race, racial attitudes, the surveys that look at, at the answers to those questions identify the, the Trump voters more than anything else. So there's an edge of, of racial resentment that Richard Nixon honed, you know, starting in the late 60s that you know, that the Republicans have, have honed ever since. You know, even Mitt Romney, we, you know, Mitt Romney came out against Trump and he's so horrified by Trump. Mitt Romney courted Trump. He asked for his endorsement uh, in 2012 as Trump was becoming the leading, the birther in chief, right? And, you know, denigrating, becoming the spokesperson and hero to the, the portion of our country that would not accept that we ha- that we actually had an elected black president and tried to uh, label him illegitimate. So, you know, Mitt Romney bears some blame in the ri- in the rise of Trump. I think that for a while Republicans have have been torn between knowing that they are the party of white people and that they can't survive in in the long term that way, but in the short term, feeling like maybe there's just enough white people to get us across the finish line this election, <laughs> yes. and we'll, we'll worry about the Latinos and Asians and, and women, you know, next time around. There's, it, they, ne- they are never quite ready to do what they need to do to widen their appeal, and certainly they rejected that this time around. You have a fascinating report at thenation.com this week on a group called Working America, a really important story. What is Working America? Well, I love Working America. They are an affiliate of the AFL-CIO that works with with non-union households. They 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 go out into working class communities, uh, white and black, and uh, you know talk to people about politics, talk to them about their economic issues, and and get membership. You know, they they try to. They're actually a membership based organization, although you know the AFL-CIO subsidizes them. Uh, but they, but they really try to have conversations with with working class voters. In uh, last December, though, they started uh, a project uh, called, I think, Front Porch Focus Groups to talk to, as we were getting these reports that, you know, Trump was polling well among white working class voters. And, you know, what they found was it was not his, it was not his policies such as they are. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, People love, these people love his free trade or his anti-free trade, excuse me, policies. Only 8% in their focus groups said it was his policies. It was really that they believe he tells it like it is, and they believe he's a bomb thrower and, and the government is broken. And so their, their philosophy is find out what people care about, give them answers to their questions. You went along with a Working America canvasser to one of these front porch focus groups. You said it was in Brooklyn. Which Brooklyn was that? Uh, Brooklyn, Ohio. Yeah, let's not be chauvinistic about the coasts. Brooklyn, Ohio is just outside of Cleveland. It's a white middle to working class kind of suburb, high, pretty high home ownership. And they, they, have, they have targeted 
Brooklyn. And, you know, so we, we went door to door. And really, what they try to do is have conversations with people. It's not, it's not a heavy, you know, hard hitting, you know, who are you going to vote for? It's more what, what do you think the top issue? What's the top issue to your family? And who and then, as people open up, who are they going to vote for? And, you know, we found a number of people who, who really are, you know, very busy, they're not paying attention, they want to understand who's got the best you know, student debt plan. Who's got the best uh, a mental health counselor who apologized for being kind of apolitical, but was dedicated to her job and wanted to know who had the best, you know, mental health treatment plan. And, and, you know, they promised to come back and bring you literature about the issues you identify as important. And, you know, as it gets closer to the election, they're, they're a pro-democratic group. They, you know, they urge votes for the Democrats. So in Ohio, they'll also be dropping Ted Strickland literature for his, at this point, under, underdog Senate race. But it's not, it's not the kind of door knocking I've done in the past where all you want to do is identify your supporters and make a plan to get them out to vote on election day. It's really cultivating relationships. And I, I really, you know, it's, it's too, I think it's too small. It's not well enough funded to make a huge difference. But watching it at work, it made me think about the kinds of, of efforts that can bring about change. Because I think there is, there is a sense that a lot of these people do feel isolated from the prevailing culture and like their, their views don't matter. And being asked what they think about politics and what, they, what really matters to them, I think, has kind of a profound effect uh, on the way they think about themselves. Last question. The big issue here, of course, is what would it take to defeat the racism and resentment in the white working class? You know, having written a book that grappled with that, I feel a little bit more pessimistic than I did four years ago because I feel like President Obama hasn't done enough. I really wish he'd thrown some bankers in jail. I really wish he'd he'd done more to try to save people's homes from foreclosure at the same time as he was trying to save the banks from collapse. But having said that, he's done a number of things that I think have made a material difference in the life of white working class voters, starting with Obamacare, which certainly benefits them, through the auto restructuring, which I think that the auto restructuring is why he stayed competitive in the Midwest. So that's a positive thing, but he still didn't win white working class voters in in Ohio. So I guess I thought that if, if Democrats could make more of a positive difference in the lives of these voters, that they would come back to the party. But it hasn't happened to the extent that I hoped it would. So I'm a little bit more sad and pessimistic about it than I was. You know, it's easy to say that the younger generation um, could be more open-minded, but that's not necessarily going to be true. You know, I'd like to see more uh, larger scale uh, endeavors like like working America, but my old feeling, and I think the simplistic kind of feeling on the part of a lot of lefties and, you know, some Bernie Sanders supporters during the primary is that, oh, if you spoke to these people and promised to do well by them, you could win them. But, uh, you know, that is not turning out to be so much the truth. For me, all the things that you should do to win back the white working class vote economically are things that are good for the country, that are good for black and Latino and Asian uh, Americans as well. And you do them, you try them. If you win them back, that's great. If you don't, you know, you tried. Joan Walsh, 
Her terrific piece on white working class voters is at thenation.com now. Thank you, Joan. Thanks, John. Now it's time to talk about the Clinton Foundation with Amy Willens. Judicial Watch is a right-wing anti-Clinton organization that spent decades pursuing Bill and Hillary, mostly with Freedom of Information Act requests. They're the ones behind the release of emails from the State Department that show the at least potential conflicts of interest and potential corruption involving the Clinton Foundation while Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and as Hillary works to become our next president. Donald Trump calls the Clinton Foundation the most corrupt enterprise in political history. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a frequent guest here and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She also teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Hi, John. Glenn Greenwald asked the question, why did the Saudi regime give millions to the Clinton Foundation? The Saudis, of course, run one of the worst tyrannies in the world. They oppress women. They execute gay people. Why do you think the Saudis gave millions to the Clinton Foundation? Well, I don't think it was to support the girl-centered charitable work that the Clinton Foundation does in various countries, and I don't think it was to support the LGBT work that the Clinton Foundation does in various places. I don't see how you could assume that. Therefore, you have to then put your thinking cap on. Okay. And I think that the Saudis looked, looked at two, perhaps three words associated with the Clinton Foundation, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and Chelsea Clinton. And they said, these people are not going away from American power politics. One of them might become Secretary of State. I believe the Saudi donations were stopped by the Clinton Foundation when Hillary became uh, Secretary of State, but they estimates of the donations to the foundation vary from $10 million to $25 million. So you can coast on that for a little while while you're Secretary of State. Of course, it's to curry influence and to gain access. There can be no question about it with this incredibly powerful family that one day might indeed return to the White House. It's virtually pharaonic. That means like pharaohs. It does, doesn't it? So let's talk about what the Clinton Foundation does with the $2 billion that mostly raised by Bill, the New York Times says the foundation, quote, pioneered initiatives ranging from fostering female-owned businesses in Haiti to lowering the cost of HIV-AIDS drugs in Africa. I noticed that Haiti comes first in the New York Times story. Women in Haiti, you know something about women in Haiti. So let's talk about the Clinton Foundation in Haiti. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. It's kind of this great, gigantic, powerful money-spewing contraption, and it comes into your country. It's weird. It's uh, it's very much a supranational organization. And then uh, Bill has a lot of friends in Haiti from a long-time relationship with the country, with Citibank there in the country. He and Hillary, along with him, they know 
what journalists like me would call everybody in the country. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not everybody in the country, but it is. uh, And I believe this happens in other countries. I know them less well, obviously. Uh, It's the ruling elite of Haiti. All Haitians are not created equal, you know. And so what happens is with a, a group like the Clinton Foundation, of which there is no other group like the Clinton Foundation, I believe, and the Global Initiative, they come in and they deal with the English-speaking, morally repugnant elite, as we used to call them okay. when we were young. And uh, so in a, in a sense, although they're doing good work, I believe, in certain respects, they're also uh, entrenching the elite that's been there for a long time. They're financing it. They're allowing it broader scope. They're encouraging it to pat the heads of less well-off Haitians and feed them. And in a country like Haiti, when you, you know, it's very complicated. When you start feeding people two meals a day at your school, then you're buying them and you are superseding the government. There's no room for the government to get its act together when everybody else is coming in and replacing that government. It's been Haiti's problem for a long time, and the Clinton Foundation simply plays into it. Now, the defenders of the Clinton Foundation say there's no evidence that she gave favors to donors while she was Secretary of State. Maybe I'm misunderstanding something, but I thought I read something in the New York Times where even Huma Abedin, who likes to do whatever Hillary wants her to do, said, I'm uncomfortable with this request for access to so-and-so because just because this guy has given the foundation money doesn't mean he should have political access under your secretaryship. There are a couple of cases that, that have been highlighted in the news. One is a Lebanese billionaire or something like that who wanted to meet the American ambassador to Lebanon, and the Clintons point out he never got to meet the American ambassador to Lebanon. Uh, Another one is the crown prince of Bahrain or something like that, who wanted some kind of favors, which they say he did not get. Another one was some people who requested, who gave money to the Clinton Foundation and then requested diplomatic passports. But the Clinton Foundation replied this was to accompany Bill to North Korea to free two American journalists this was a, a noble thing. And actually, they, the, North, the North Koreans never required the diplomatic passport, so that never came to pass either. And therefore, there's no, quote, smoking gun. But all of those are smoking guns, in my opinion, because that means that those people who gave those monies felt that they were getting something. If they're not getting it, a lot of people are going to stop giving money. And I don't believe there's any hint with the coming presidential election, that the Clinton Foundation is raising less money. I doubt it. I haven't read it. So people are expecting favors. Now, these cases perhaps show that they didn't get the favors they were expecting. Maybe they'll get another favor. You can't prove the quid pro quo. It's very hard to prove that this action was done because of this donation. It's very hard to prove But you can say, as one says in so many areas of the law and in areas of protocol and procedure and precedent, that the appearance of impropriety is what counts. If you've set up an organization, an entity, that by its very nature, because of who you are, not your fault, but you are who you are, because of who you are, every donation to this thing can be considered inappropriate in some way. 
One of the most high-profile defenders of the Clintons on this is New York Times columnist Paul Krugman and Princeton economics professor. He says to people like you and me, you talk about the appearance of impropriety. Let's contrast that with the Republicans candidate who has been proven to have spent years bilking students at Trump University, decades of stiffing contractors and workers on his construction projects, person who has openly lied about his own charitable contributions. Yes, appearances matter, but which candidate appears to be more dishonest and more corrupt? Yeah, Trump is an out-and-out liar. And I was very interested to read an op-ed piece in the New York Times by Richard Painter. This guy, who was a Clinton supporter, obviously, was of the opinion that all government is corrupt. And the Clinton Foundation, maybe it's corrupt, or it certainly could appear to be corrupt. But that's okay. That's how government works, has always worked. And um, they should deal with it now. And, And I agreed with his conclusions that, first of all, Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea should sever themselves from the foundation as of now. They should sign an agreement with the foundation that they will never again return to the foundation should Hillary win the election, and that the uh, foundation can no longer take monies from foreign entities, including government. I mean, Human Rights Watch won't even give its gala fundraiser at the Beverly Hills Hotel because it's owned by the Sultan of Brunei whose government is massively anti-LGBT. But the Clinton Foundation takes their money. The Clinton Foundation has agreed with the critics who say that the appearance of impropriety is something to be avoided. And so earlier this month, the foundation announced that if Hillary is elected, it will stop accepting money from foreign donors and from American corporations and corporate foundations. Contributors would be limited to American citizens, permanent residents, and U.S.-based independent foundations. And it said it would spin off some of its programs to partner foundations, though which ones it doesn't That's just say. not enough. And, and Bill Clinton would step down from the Ford Foundation board Why do you think that wouldn't solve the problem? Well, first of all, if the Clintons, whose foundation has done a lot of good work, if they had a shred of sense about the propriety and and dignity of the office of president of the United States, from the moment Hillary got up and said, I'm running for president, they would have instituted these strictures on, on donations. But as it is, they're saying, no, we want to take your money up until... January 20th, basically, or maybe November, whatever is the day of the election. November 8th. November 8th. And I just think it's it's a bold-faced hypocrisy. One little footnote to all this, the plans that they have announced include Chelsea running the foundation while Hillary is president. They say Chelsea isn't running for office, so we need someone to run this. Why? What do you think about Chelsea remaining at the helm of the Clinton Foundation while her mother is in the White House. Listeners, I wish you could see my head going, no, 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 and how I had to lean back in my chair and put my head against the wall. The Chelsea factor, it's ridiculous. You know, she is her parents. She's part of the machine. Yeah, she's a really smart person. She understands a lot. She'd probably be great at running the Clinton Foundation. But you have to make sacrifices when you want to be president of the United States. You can't just go on cultivating this influence machine. Because people like you and I think Chelsea might 
whisper something to her mother over dinner. Well, yes, and it's bad enough that they would think Chelsea, but there are plenty of people there, and they know this. They don't need Chelsea there. They don't have to have the name there. In fact, the thing that they've set up is forever damaging to them, no matter how they distance themselves, no matter what they do with it. It's a problem for them. And if I were Hillary, I would speak about it. I would talk about my dedication to the foundation and its work. I would talk about how I understood how these things could seem inappropriate, and I would explain how I was cutting myself off for it, from it. And that would be great. But I still think with all the money that the foundation has, you can remove all Clintons from it, and still you're going to have someone at the helm who's been with the Clintons for 100 years. And we know that the kind of loyalty the Clintons inspire is the kind of loyalty the Kennedys have inspired. It is unquestioning. It is absolute. It is omerta. So you've convinced me. I'm voting for her. (laughs) You've convinced me the Clinton Foundation should continue to go about its business of doing good works. But the Clintons, all of the Clintons, should do something else from now on. We'll see if Chelsea can get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Amy Willens, thanks for coming in today. Thanks, John. What's it like to be an abortion provider in an anti-choice state? To find out, we turn to Dr. Leah Torres. She's an obstetrician gynecologist in Salt Lake City. We reached her today in Salt Lake City. Dr. Torres, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Could we start by having you read us what it says at the top of your Twitter page? Yes. My pinned tweet says, I perform abortions. I am not evil. I keep my patients safe. I respect my patients. I am a person. I do not deserve to be murdered. And of course, there was that Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs that was attacked last year. Three people were killed, nine injured by a gunman who who got inside. Colorado is right next to Utah. Colorado Springs is something like a 400-mile drive from Salt Lake City. I imagine you've thought a lot about what happened in Colorado Springs. What precautions do you take around your work? It breaks my heart that it's still something that I have to think about when I go to work every day. But I, you know, I take the proper precautions just like anybody would. You know, I make sure that I don't wear scrubs outside. I don't make myself very noticeable. Um, I use a post office box as opposed to my house address. I, I don't think I take extraordinary measures because, again, part of my trying to reduce this violence is to be out and be proud, as it were, about my taking care of people in a safe and proactive manner. What are the laws in Utah about abortion? Well, I think that we have a limited time, but I will uh, run run through the big ones. So abortions have to be performed in not just an outpatient clinic, but an outpatient clinic meeting certain specifications. And that's under the guise of safety. Yet at the same time, Abortions are not allowed, and it is illegal to perform abortions in the safest place possible, which is the hospital, through the state law. So there are many state laws that contradict each other as far as where abortions can be performed, who can perform them, how they're paid for, when they can be done. It's enough to make anybody pull their hair out and just scream, let me practice medicine, please. 
And if if a woman needs an abortion in Utah, how how many how many places can she go to? There are two clinics in the state of Utah and one in particular that goes into the second trimester. So we see people accessing care from a 500-mile radius, and that is with an additional three-day waiting period. So the financial and time burdens on people needing to access abortion care in and around this state alone is extraordinary. We know that Mormon culture makes Utah somewhat different from the states where evangelical Protestantism is strong. In Utah, for example, we've recently learned there's less support for Donald Trump than in the so-called Bible Belt, apparently because people in the LDS Church aren't enthusiastic about a government targeting a religious group. They they know that, that Mormons were once targeted by the United States government. Are, are there differences between the attitudes towards abortion and the treatment of abortion providers in Utah compared to other anti-abortion states? You know, I think that anyone who is against abortion for whatever reason, whether it's religious or simply personal beliefs, at the end of the day, to prohibit someone from accessing medical care, to prohibit someone from accessing an abortion that they want, is reproductive coercion, regardless if you're coming from a Catholic background, an LDS background, a, you know, just Christian, Judaic, like it doesn't matter what background you have. People need access to abortion and it should not be made more difficult. It should be made easier more accessible because that keeps these procedures safe. And what brought you to Salt Lake City? Uh, further training in abortion care, ironically. Wow. Tell us a little more about yeah, it, that. how that happened. It's uh, fate, as it were. So I felt that after residency training, I did not have adequate training in providing abortions and providing abortion care. So I sought a fellowship in family planning And that concentrates around clinical research, contraception, and abortion care. And so the family planning program, the family planning fellowship that I was matched to in in medical training, we kind of have like a draft sort of scenario. So I was matched to the program at the University of Utah. Amazing. So I understand you do abortions one Saturday a month. What do you do Monday through Friday? Everything else. Uh, I do deliveries, prenatal care, pap smears, physical exams, contraception, everything, you know, hysterectomies, everything that an OBGYN does in general practice. You uh, talked about the Utah law requiring that abortion clinics have surgical facilities. On the legal front, the Supreme Court in June struck down the Texas law with the same requirement. Doesn't this mean the Utah law will be struck down pretty soon? That all depends. So, and this is a point of confusion for many of us in this country. So just because a federal guideline or law is upheld by the Supreme Court does not automatically revoke those laws in other states. So the laws here will need to be challenged, and what that means is they're going to have to go to court. Whether or when that will happen, no one really knows, but it does stand to reason that that should not be a thing because the Supreme Court said it is against, it's unconstitutional. Speaking of points of confusion, Utah has a law requiring that anesthesia be administered to the fetus before an abortion. How do you do that? 
Well, I'm still waiting for the legislators to tell me because I really don't know. Uh, they still haven't gone back to me about that. I've called them into my clinic. I've called them into the operating room. I've called them in a public forum. I've asked them and they still are unable to tell me how. And so I'm going to continue to provide the evidence-based medicine that I know how to provide. And if they would like to challenge that, they should and can and are welcome to do so. The argument in favor of abortion is, is changing. We used to say everybody wants abortion to be rare. Is that your emphasis now? I don't agree with that statement personally, and I don't think many professionals do. To say that it should be rare is to say that it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think we all want fewer abortions because I think ultimately the goal for anyone in our society and anyone who is a humanitarian should be every pregnancy is desired, every pregnancy is planned because those are the healthiest pregnancies, and that results in healthier families. And so speaking as someone who is part of humanity, I think abortions are going to be whatever they need to be. But ideally, every pregnancy is one that is planned and desired. I'm sure you know that California is one of the small number of states that have made abortion easier. Starting in 2014, it permitted nurse practitioners, certified nurse midwives, and physician's assistants to perform one kind of abortion called aspiration abortion during the first trimester. Don't you wish you were in California? There are many reasons I wish I were in California, but... Okay. Uh, California is a bit of a Shangri-La, and I think I'm definitely much more needed here, unfortunately. So uh, I'll stay here. How long do you plan to keep doing this in Utah? Until I can't ski here anymore, probably. <laughs> that's that's I, I assume that will be a long time. Hopefully. Some abortion providers keep uh, a low profile, try to stay out of the public eye as much as possible. You have taken sort of the opposite stance. You have a very public identity. You argue in public. You write about it. Why have you taken that stance? I think it's because I've seen what silence and stigma and shame do to the reproductive health access and human rights movement. Basically, if people are shamed into silence, the myths will perpetuate, the misinformation and the lies will, will perpetuate. And as we've seen, violence will, will perpetuate. I, I don't let anyone hold over my head that they're going to find me. That's a big thing. That's a very big intimidating uh, intimidation tool that the anti-choice movement uses over, over providers is, we're going to tell your neighbors, we're going to tell your friends, we're going to you know, do all these things to you in your social circles, I take that power away from them by being out. I take the power of shame and stigma away from them by being out and proud. I give people great health care, and they are able to achieve the goals that they have in life. As a result, there is no shame in that, and I'm super proud and honored to be able to do that. Dr. Leah Torres, she's featured in a totally great video at thenation.com. You can find it at the website. Scroll down to the bottom of the homepage at thenation.com and click on watch. Dr. Torres, I have to say, when I saw that video, I thought a star is born. <laughs> Thanks so much. You have to credit those who, who put the video together. Certainly not me. They did an amazing job. Dr. Leah Torres, thank you for your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. 
Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NA, or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.